love that song. Go ahead and be seated. And while you're being seated, would you just help me thank our music team again? What a gift. Thank you, George. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Kim, and I'm so glad you're here today. We are in for an interesting time with the writer of Psalm 73. You know, I think it's really interesting how this has been fair week and the weather has been so fair and many of us have taken a break from the fair weathered fair to be here to talk together about something that seems so unfair. That's, that's, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Because this guy Asaph is the writer of Psalm 73 and that was what was on his mind. So we're going to take a look with him. Would you go ahead and get out your program you got when you came in the door and your Bible? And if you got a lobby Bible, then turn to page 446 because that's where we're starting today. You know, Ron gave me a choice about which psalm that I wanted to tackle. And I chose Psalm 73 because I love the last verses near the end. And I had no idea what this guy Asaph was really talking about. Why do I do these things to myself? This is a hard one for me. In fact, I found myself getting pretty riled up. I wanted to punch somebody some of the time. Let's see how you feel about it as we dig in this morning. But while we get started, let me ask you this. Have you ever had this feeling of um, a spiritual funk in your life? I'm not talking about a feeling of boredom or blasé in your pursuit of God. I'm talking about a feeling of disillusionment. As you look around at other people and you compare your life and you start to think, you know, this is not fair. And what happens is we begin to get cynical. We kind of begin to put God on trial, kind of look at him and say, you know, I'm really not sure about you anymore. If that's you this morning, you are not alone. And I'd like to recommend to you a book that I found so helpful by Lee Strobel. It's called The Case for Faith. You know, we have lots of folks that come around Twin Cities that are not yet followers of Christ. They're just checking out Christianity. They're not sure about God yet. And if that's you this morning, we are so glad you're here. I'd like to tell you, this is a great book for you because I bet you have legitimate questions that you really need to pursue answers for. And this book will help you do that. But you know, even Christ followers need a way to vent their uncertainties, their hard questions. And like Ron said, you know, we've been in this series about psalms, and it just feels better to be looking at the upbeat psalms. But did you know that 60% of the psalms are laments, where people are screaming at God, where are you? You know, normal, real faith is allowed to beat on God's chest and complain. But some people are not real comfortable with those kind of questions. Listen to what Lee Strobel has to say about that. He says, for many Christians, merely having doubts of any kind can be scary. They wonder whether their questions disqualify them being a follower of Christ, whether it's permissible to express uncertainty about God, Jesus, or the Bible. So they keep their questions to themselves, and inside, unanswered, they grow and fester and loom until eventually they succeed in choking out their faith. Now that could happen to you or me. That could could have happened to Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73. You know, he was one of King David's music directors. 
he wrote 14 of the Psalms. And I just love how honest he is and all those psalm writers because instead of hiding their misgivings they just go ahead and write poetry about their their misgivings it's such a straightforward way of dealing with them the fact is you might want to write this down your first fill in my faith is strengthened when i ask honest questions that's what we're going to do along with asaph because my faith is strengthened when i ask honest questions so Here I go. I'm going to start at verse 1 of Psalm 73. Asaph says this. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. What's the deal for Asaph? He says, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. So here is Asaph's honest, hard question. He says this, why is it that wicked people seem to have it so good? Asaph wasn't just noticing that these wicked people were prospering. He was envying that. So a more nitty-gritty, honest way to put Asaph's question is this, why do wicked people seem to have it better than me? That's what really got to Asaph. Mean guys seem to be successful. I'm working so hard to be honest and forthright, and I'm not advancing as fast as the mean guy. Now, he's not saying that all successful people are crooked. Okay, got that? But what he is saying, he's asking the age-old question, why is it that sometimes bad guys seem to win the game of life? He says in verse 4, they seem to have to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. I think Asaph has lost some objectivity. Do you? But I've heard it over and over. When I'm trying scrupulously to be honest, how is it that that guy cheated me? I have a friend who told me that she and her family were about to buy the perfect piece of property here in Nevada County to build not only their dream home, but a place of ministry. And at the last moment, a guy swooped in and with a shady deal, just took it right out from under them. How is it that that can happen? If there's a God, a God who loves us, a God who wants us to live honest lives, have you ever felt that way? Asaph says they wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. Now, maybe it's not a personal problem for you. Maybe it's when you're looking at the news. The Rolling Stone magazine ran an article about the stoner arms dealers. In two years, these guys cleared $85 million, contributed to who knows how many deaths, as they sold ammunition to both sides of the war. And they're proud. They quoted in this article, all the bullets were coming from us. It was so cool. They had cool cars, chic condos, model girlfriends, and their own personal drug dealers. This is the kind of thing that Asaph was looking at God and saying, God, hello, are you paying attention? He says in verse 7, these fat cats have everything their hearts could wish for. How about the business of pornography? Steve Hirsch is worth billions due to his porn business. I didn't say millions. I said billions, and it's very sad. Given that this Wired magazine ran an article where they said 
Internet porn worse than crack. Now remember, this is Wired magazine. This is not focused on the family. Here is their opening sentence of their article. Internet pornography is the new crack cocaine, leading to addiction, misogyny, which is mistreatment of women, pedophilia, which is abuse of children, according to clinicians and researchers testifying before a Senate committee. Marianne Layden, co-director of the Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology Program at the University of Pennsylvania, called porn the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today. And this guy is making billions off of it, comfortably. Can you see why I got a little riled up? Why ASAP is a little uptight? He says in verse 8, they scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. Last month, our family was on our way home. We came through a, a town where we had some precious friends, and they shared with us that in their little town, that all of the residents and small business owners on one block were being required to sell and vacate their property so that the leaders of this little town could advance their own agenda. And if they would not sell, then their home would be condemned. How does it all jive with a God of sovereignty and justice and love? Asaph says they boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Asaph is saying, does this stuff even matter to you, God? And then the capper, verse 12. Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Translated, God, I'm done. There are people who spit in your face. Their pockets are getting full. They, they oppress good people. They don't have a care in the world. I can't take it anymore. Asaph was headed out the back door. And then he says something that reveals his deeper issue with God. In verse 13, he says, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? Can you feel what this guy is saying? He's saying, I have kept my hands clean. I can't talk about this to anyone, but here's my honest question. Has my devotion to God been in vain? He says, I've kept my heart clean, but it's all been in vain. He says, maybe I am the idiot. You know, during my college years, I spent a summer playing my bassoon in the college orchestra at Epcot Center. Now, I know some of you are saying, she played a what? But see, the Disney people, they housed the whole orchestra in apartments where we had four people in a unit. And so basically, they, they bust us back and forth between our housing and the very warm venue of Central Florida Disney property in the summertime. And I was suddenly thrown into a community with about 40 strangers for the whole summer. My, I was a Christ follower, and my faith was really important to me. And as the summer went along, I found one other person in that orchestra 
who was also a Christ follower, a beautiful African-American girl named Lorna. She and I became friends. Now, I was also assigned a roommate, but I didn't see much of her because she was spending all her time and her nights with other orchestra members, mostly guys. It was well known. Now, I didn't have it all together by any means, but it was my goal just to live the life of a Christ follower. And one of the things I do to keep myself pumped as a follower of Christ is in my spare time or when I'm getting ready, I like to listen to tapes of Bible teachers. And I will never forget the moment that my friend Lorna told me what my sweet mates were saying about me. They were going, she listens to preaching. Now, for them, this was a summer-long keg party, you know? They were doing all kinds of drinking and behavior that would never be talked about because at the end of the summer, we were going to disband and go our separate ways. And I just remember thinking to myself, they're saying maybe I'm the idiot. And I thought, I don't think I'm the idiot. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But I will never forget the challenge of that summer. I heard another guy who's serious about his pursuit of God tell about a job he had where he punched a time card along with a whole team of other guys. When they got there, they punched in, and when they left, they punched out. And he was there uh, on the back dock one day when they got their paychecks, and he looked around, and he realized his check was significantly smaller than the rest of them. And so they told him about a scheme that they had cooked up where one guy would get there early and punch everybody in, and another guy would stay late and punch everybody out. And they were looking at him like, you're the idiot, man. I bet every one of you who is serious about your walk with Christ has had a moment when you were playing by the rules, when you were going the straight line, when you were being the Boy Scout or being the Girl Scout, And you looked around at others, many of whom claim to be Christ followers, and they're cutting the corners, they're shaving the truth, they're hiding the income. And and you it seems to me that it seems to you that they're getting away with it just fine. There are no consequences that you can see. And then you start to think, you know, maybe I'm taking all this too seriously. What am I getting for all this devotion? Is there any payoff? Maybe I'm the idiot. Maybe nobody really lives this out. And you begin to play that over and over in your brain. And that's what Asaph did. And finally, he got to the point where he concluded that it was in vain that he had kept his heart pure. I was talking to a guy from our church recently who said to me, Kim, I've done everything I know to do. I come to church regularly. I'm a part of a community group. I try to honor God with my money, and my life just keeps getting worse. It reminds me of a poster you might have seen a few years back. I bet you've seen this. It says, lost dog, three legs, blind in one eye, missing right ear, tail broken, recently castrated, answers to the name of Lucky. (laughs) You ever feel like that? God says, I'm lucky. I'm one of his chosen ones, but my life stinks. You know, there's a tipping point for Asaph. Look at verse 17. He says, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. Today we would say he was living in all this angst and then he went to church. And he says, And I finally understood. See, that's when his perspective began to change. 
And look at what he says he realized there at church. Three things. First, in 17, he says he realized their sober destiny. I finally understood the destiny of the wicked, he says. He says he also realized their slippery path. Verse 18, you put them on a slippery path. And the third thing he realizes in verse 21, he says he realized his own sour heart. I realized my heart was bitter. Now, you didn't expect me to say he realized his bitter heart, did you? We're into S's today. That's how we're going to remember this. Their sober destiny, their slippery path, his sour heart. When he pondered these three things, he came out of church a transformed man. If you don't believe me, look at what he wrote in the last part, starting at 23. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And I get it now. You're leading me to a glorious destiny. Verse 26. God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Asaph is saying, call me an idiot. I don't care, but I'm sticking with God. He's my hope. He's my refuge. Yes. So at the beginning, Asaph is thinking about bailing on God. Too many good things are happening for very bad people. I feel like a fool keeping my nose clean. But then he goes into the sanctuary comes out the other side and is like, God, it's worth it a hundred times over to follow you. I'm in. I'm in. Now, I think we need to take a look a little deeper at these three thoughts because there just might be somebody here this morning who needs to leave transformed. In fact, I think there's power here for all of us. Their sober destiny, their slippery path, his own sour heart. But we're going to take him out of order. We're going to look at the second one first. Asaph said he realized those folks are on a slippery path. Now, we all know about the danger of being on a slippery path. A couple weeks ago, Ron and I had the chance to spend a few mornings hiking on a beautiful Colorado mountain, 9,500 feet elevation. The snow is still visible on peaks around us and a pretty decent path for a city girl like me. You know, I've had to toughen up on these events with Ron, because, you know, in his former life, he was a land surveyor. Land surveyor, he was an oil rig laborer, so he tackles terrain like he's at home in his living room. The only thing that's missing for him is his diet Dr. Pepper and his mother's cinnamon roll. (laughs) But, you know, I pick my way along behind him on that trail, and then I start to notice there's bigger and bigger distance between me and him, and before long... There's no sight of him, you know? I just don't know where he is. And then I'll come upon him sitting on a rock looking at the view. One time, I hiked right past him, and he said, Boo! (laughs) But, you know, he didn't seem to mind the waiting on me. He was very gracious. And yet, I had to point out, Honey, you know, every step you take, you've got six inches more length in your legs, so you're making time on me every step. And he had to point out, well, yeah, but I'm also carrying 100 pounds more up the mountain. He's right. Well, by the last day, I was determined to keep up. And I did. I was breathing on his heels until it was time to come down. Because because coming down the mountain, I discovered firsthand the meaning of a slippery path. You know, one moment I'm resembling a gazelle, graceful, sure-footed, and the next moment I'm on my backside, and I get pretty skittish about the whole thing. 
you know what I mean. When you find those spots that are loose, that the ground is just unstable, and where the rocks are slippery, it doesn't matter how buff you feel, how determined you are, how many times you say to yourself, I'm bad, I got this thing, it doesn't matter. When you're standing on a slippery spot, you're in a precarious position. You know what I'm talking about. Remember Bernie Madoff, the financier? One day he's having a world-class dinner in his world-class Manhattan apartment, and the next day he's eating jail food in a downtown prison because he'd been standing all that time on slippery ground. You know, all that time, he'd been ripping people off and their money in a classic Ponzi scheme. And all that time, people were envying his big life. They wanted his glamorous lifestyle. What they didn't know is that he was standing on slippery ground and one day his feet slipped out from under him and no one is envying his big life now because his prison sentence is for 150 years. So Asaph realized those folks that he was envying are on a slippery path. And he also realized in verse 17, their sober destiny I like to hear Bill Hybels. He's the pastor of a large church over in Chicago, tell stories, especially about getting out on the waters of Lake Michigan. And he told about being in a very small boat along with a man. They were in the environment where 25 mega yachts were anchored, and the man that was with him knew the owners of many of those mega yachts. We're talking about boats between 200 and 500 feet in length, dollar amounts between 25 million and 250 million. Bill was admiring those massive boats. He was going, whoa, look at that dark blue hull. I love blue hulls. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, the owner of that boat, you know, he siphoned off about a billion dollars from an African company when he was their finance officer. That's pretty well known. And Bill looked at another boat and goes, oh, look at the sheer line of that boat. I could comb my hair in its reflection. And the guy goes, well, yeah, the owner of that boat, you know, makes his money because he owns several hundred sweatshops that produce the stuff he sells. And one by one, Bill said that there were stories. Not all of them. Some of them, people earned their money and bought a boat. But for many of them, there was a number that were purchased through shady deals. And I got to thinking about Bill's story, about the eternity of some of those mega yacht owners. I'm guessing that some of them were not in a right relationship with God. And I thought, boy, I hope they're enjoying those boats now because the eternity they're facing is beyond awful. You know, when Jesus talked about hell, he used a kind of imagery that just stopped people dead in their tracks. He talked about a place of darkness and separation and aloneness. He underlined the point that it went on and on. There was no end to it, no end to it, and that's why it's called forever. Asaph realized that he had been envying all these people. He, he thought to himself in a kind of a self-convicted way, why would I envy somebody who isn't going to heaven? Look at what he said in 24. You're leading me to a glorious destiny. He says, God, you're going to take me to heaven. And he realizes that many of those successful-looking people are on slippery places. 
Why would I envy them? Jesus asked the same cutting question in the book of Matthew. He said this, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? It's like Jesus cut to the chase and said, Folks, do the math. Take all the emotion out of it. (coughs) Excuse me. You gain this whole world for just a brief flash of time while you're here. And then you wind up losing your soul and separated from God and everybody else forever. Think it through. This is one thing I've tried to impress on my kids while they're growing up. That they're going to be in eternity a lot longer than they're going to be here in this life. I'm sure they want to say, well, no, duh, mom. (laughs) But, you know, what could be more important for them to understand? That is the reality that's going to last. So I've tried to say, don't let any earthly temptation or distraction or entanglement or addiction compromise your relationship to God, the one who secures your eternity. Get that one right. Because once you've got heaven, you can put up with an awful lot here on this earth. Now the third thing that Asaph realized was his own sour heart. He says, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. Asaph is so vulnerable here. He unveils the last 10% of his stinking thinking. The sour question he's been asking while he looks at all these successful people out there. He's asking this, is God holding out on me? Now that's a deadly question. I talked to a man who said that the chief financial officer of his company had embezzled tens of thousands from their company. And recently I heard of another reputable person, a leader who had been caught in an affair. I'm sure you've heard stories like that. When we hear about people that get caught in a mess, when everybody's looking on and going, him, her, that's so stupid. I heard Dallas Willard comment on what's often going on in those situations. He said many times when a person is caught in a moral failure, that the problem is most often on a much deeper level than just talking about greed or sensuality. He says usually it's about that deadly perspective that God is holding out on me. The dangerous place we're in when we have a sense of bitterness, a sour heart that looks at God and says, God, you owe this to me. Their heart is grieved and their spirit embittered because they have drawn the conclusion that God is holding out on them. It's a very dangerous conclusion. You might want to write this down. That's a dangerous conclusion because bitterness makes me numb to God's goodness. When my heart is grieved and my spirit is embittered, I can't sense what God is doing. Do you like to run on the beach? I heard a gal tell about a run she took on the beach at a time when she felt like her life stunk when she felt like God was holding out on her, and she had workout music pumping into her ears. She was in her own world. She was oblivious to the water. And and she said that suddenly when she was running, the waves caught her eye, and she looked up and she thought, I'm missing out on the greatest feature of the planet, this evidence of God's power and majesty. And she said at that moment she realized 
she heard God speaking to her and saying, that is what your bitterness has been doing to your relationship to me. She said, I've been thinking, God's unfair, life's unfair, and she couldn't hear God. Asaph had put God on trial. Is that something that you can relate to? Maybe you're like Asaph. Maybe your faith is teetering and you're in a place of decision. You know, when you have a decision to make, it's important to weigh all the evidence and not just a little piece of it. We've been focusing on one matter, how prosperous these wicked people appear to be. And if you concentrate on that one obstacle to faith, it's hard to remember that there is an eternity at stake here. It's easy to miss the big picture. So as I wrap up this morning, I want to share with you an illustration I got from that book, The Case for Faith. It it actually came from a guy named J.P. Moreland, and I'm going to adapt it. It's an illustration that makes my husband a little bit uncomfortable, but he and I agreed that it has value. I think you'll see that. Suppose I saw my husband holding hands with another woman at the coffee shop. Would it be reasonable for me to conclude that he was cheating on me? Well, it depends on what evidence I consider. If the only evidence I weigh is what I saw at the coffee shop, then I would say to myself, well, I don't see anything to indicate that he's not cheating, but that would leave something out, wouldn't it? That would be to ignore a huge chunk of evidence that has nothing to do with what happened at the coffee shop and everything to do with the last almost quarter century I have spent with him. I have known him well enough to know that he would not cheat on me like that. So if I allow that whole lifetime of evidence into my deliberation, I'd say, you know, on the surface it looks like something's funny, but there has to be another explanation. Now, Suppose that, unbeknownst to me, he had received a call from a friend uh, from 20 years earlier, a woman that he had uh, helped to discover Christ. And she was in town, hadn't seen him in two decades. So they got together at the coffee shop, and they were sharing family pictures and reminiscing, and she was about to leave for a foreign country, and he might never see her again. So, like a brother and sister, they innocently held hands and talked at the coffee shop. Well, this might be similar to this question that we're asking this morning about the rationality of trusting God no matter what we see happening in the lives of people who thumb their noses at him. You might be asking yourself, do I buy it or not, just like Asaph did. Well, if the only evidence you're factoring into your deliberation is the attractive, showy life of someone who's saying no to God, then that would be like looking at my husband's situation at the coffee shop and only allowing the evidence of what I saw. See, there's a lot of other evidence that you should consider that has nothing to do with wicked people per se, but is relevant anyway. It's all the evidence that there is indeed a God that he is the one to deal with wicked people, that he has got a firm grip on you, that his goodness to you is as big as the ocean, and that one day he will take you into glory. 
So this is the bottom line, my friends. I gain security, security in my faith, security in my relationship to God when I see God's big picture. When you factor in all the ways that God has revealed himself to you, you might say to yourself, you know, even though I don't have a completely good explanation for why the bad guy seems to have it good, I know that in the big picture that that's God's job to deal with. That's his mess to untangle. And like Asaph, you might say to yourself, as for me, go ahead and underline that phrase. As for me, this is my decision. I've made up my mind. As for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. High ground, one eye on eternity. My right hand in God's hand. He's leading my life. I'm going his way. And like Asaph, you can be rock solid when you see God's big picture. Knowing you're no idiot. You're not crazy for going his way, following him every day, laying it all down, living for him. You will never regret it. Can we pray together right now? And right now, as you pray, I want to ask you, will you go out on a limb and be really honest with God like Asaph was? Lord, I'm just so grateful for Asaph, your boy, who lived unveiled, who lived candid, who was so real before you. And I, I want that kind of relationship with you, Lord. I want to ask that you'd help each of us to be so real when we approach you because we know, Lord, you want us to get freed up. You want to lift us out of the places where we've been stuck. And as I think about Asaph and what happened for him, I think of how important that sanctuary was. Going to church, when he went to the gathering of other people who were also looking for your truth, and I just think how important that is for every one of us as well. I thank you, Lord, for this privilege that we have every single week. And I pray that you'd help us to renew our commitment to this gathering, Lord, every week, knowing that you have something you want to say to us, Lord. You want to shift our perspective as we live in a, a hard world. And I think about our community groups, God. They're getting ready to kick off, many of them, for the fall to get rejuvenated. And I just thank you because right there is a gathering of people that we can come together and, and we can talk about hard questions. We can hash out things that are just tough to deal with. I thank you for the safety of those in that environment. I pray for those who need to get involved in a community group, that this would be the, the month to launch it. I thank you that you invite each of us into our own personal sanctuary, quiet time alone with you every single day. I know, Lord, that any of us could have gotten the very same truth out of Psalm 73 in a private meeting with you. And Lord, I want to pray about the person this morning who might have heard you tap them, whisper in their ear when Asaph talked about a slippery place. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you heard God talk to you and you realize that you're in a slippery place. I just want to ask you, I would beg you actually, to let Holy Spirit 
tear into your defenses. That you would say to God, Lord, I'm in a slippery place. I've got to get out of that deal. I've got to move to solid ground. And Lord, I pray for this man, this woman, this young person who is hearing you right now. That today would be the day for that kind of bold courage to step out with you. And some of us have realized, like Asaph did, that we've gotten soured towards you, God. That our hearts have gotten tangled up with envy. We've taken our eyes off what's going to last, and we've gotten all bitter inside. I pray that you'd help us to recognize all that you do every single day to reveal your presence to us. You're a tent of love. I thank you, God, for the security of belonging to you and knowing that our service and our devotion to you is not in vain. Thank you for the, the promise of heaven that is before us. And we trust you. In the strong name of Christ, we pray. Amen.